Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome everybody to Nightlight. Thank you for joining us. It's going to be a great day because we have an amazing author on with us. But first I do want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. Please check him out on the internet. He's a native storyteller and he and his wife are preserving history and cosmology through a tradition that is older than writing and it's something that everyone should experience. So check it out. I have today with me Graham Phillips. He's a British nonfiction author who has investigated historical mysteries since the 1980s. He's investigated such enigmas as King Arthur, Robin Hood, and the death of Alexander the Great, to name a few. As well, as he's researched various biblical, biblical conundrums such as the Holy Grail and the Ark of the Covenant. To date, he's written 17 published books, and I think it's more now, but he'll fill me in on that later on these subjects and and has appeared in many broadcast documentaries over the years. He lives in England where he works full-time as what he describes as a historical detective and has been described as a real-life Indiana Jones. And I I would say that that title is absolutely appropriate. His adventures, um are amazing. His books are fascinating. And when you begin reading them, you can't put them down. So they follow you around until you're done with them. Um, I've, I've read, I think, four of them so far and um, have the rest of them on standby because they are page turners, all of them. And on top of the fact that you're entertained, you're also educated, which is a, which is a wonderful way to spend an afternoon and, and day. So welcome to the show, Graham. Thank you very much for having me on again. Oh, I, I love talking to you. I just think you have, I mean, most people would look at what you do as the coolest job in the world. Um, I have, I guess, the second coolest job. I get to talk to people who have the coolest jobs in the world. So... Um, the the fact that, that you are looking into all of these mysteries that, that have come down through history, and, and the best part of it is, you know, on a lot of these t- 
television shows, you have these people, um, Josh Gates, Scott Walter, Josh Gates more than Scott Walter, I think. He's always on a, on a quest, but he never finds anything. You find stuff, which is just phenomenal. And so how did you, what, what promoted you into getting into this field? I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing story. Well, I started as a journalist um, working for an ordinary newspaper, and then I was offered a job as an editor of a magazine called Strange Phenomena. So by its title, you can realize that it was investigating all sorts of paranormal mysteries. Um, But it also investigated other mysteries that were not necessarily the supernatural historical mysteries and it was those that fascinated me the most because very often when you're investigating the paranormal you never come to any real conclusions i mean you have plenty of witnesses and you have plenty of um, let's say with ufos plenty of uh, vague photographs and so forth but you never really find absolute answers but When you investigate history and unsolved historical enigmas, then there is an answer at the end of them, even if anybody hasn't actually discovered them yet. So that's what I got really into. And when I finished working for the magazine, I decided to start uh, working on books. And that's what I've done ever since, investigating a different historical mystery each time. Well, I think it was the Greenstone, the very first book you wrote? Yeah, the first two books I wrote were about the paranormal. Um, But they also involved historical stuff as well. The Greenstone was basically all about a search for a uh, a, a jewel stone that once was set in a ring that belonged to the... Uh, the, the British King, uh, British Queen Mary, Queen of Scots, and after uh, she was a Catholic, and eventually she was executed on the orders of the Protestant Queen Elizabeth, because she was becoming something of a a figure uh, that Catholic people in Britain in the late 1500s were 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 tended to be gathering around as a, as a possibility of overthrowing Queen Elizabeth. And when she died, all her possessions were ordered to be destroyed so that they didn't become holy relics for uh, the Catholic supporters of her in England to to hold on to. And um, within the Catholic Church at the time, things that had belonged to various individuals who had fought for the Catholic cause or supported it, that miracles could be attributed to were considered holy relics and if enough uh, proof could be found that miracles were taking place around these objects that had once belonged to somebody they could be canonized made a saint and this is the last thing that queen elizabeth wanted for her rival and cousin mary who had once been queen of scotland but kicked out and basically found sanctuary in england The last thing she wanted was her rival to become, after her death, uh, not just a martyr, but a saint. 
because it would galvanize many of the Catholic op opponents to her reign. So that's why these relics were destroyed. But one of the things that was said to survive was the stone from her ring, a green stone that was said to possess miraculous powers. And after her death, it was, it was hidden. And the legend said that in an old manor house, of Elizabethan manor house in the center of England called Harvington Hall, the Catholic owner had left a series of clues somewhere hidden away as to where this stone was. And myself and other members of the uh, Strange Phenomena team investigated this mystery. We discovered that behind oak panelling in one of the upstairs corridors of this old uh, Elizabethan manor, there were a series of paintings that basically held us, um, clues as to where this stone was hidden. And to cut a long story short, we actually discovered this stone. It was buried uh, not far away from this house. And we, basically, the people who owned the land were no way interested in it. It was discovered in a brass casket that was dated by a museum as being from the period that uh, the stone was supposed to be hidden, somewhere around 1600. And the, 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 they didn't, the people who owned the property were not in any way interested. So we managed to keep the casket and stone. And when it was taken back to the offices of the magazine, strange things started to happen. Uh, poltergeist phenomena, uh, a weird smoke appearing throughout the place for which no explanation could be found. Objects moved around by their own, uh, on their own. And even apparitions of strange dark figures appeared, and it seemed to somehow be connected with the stone. Um, the mystery was never really solved, but this was a story that involved both the supernatural and historical mysteries. And then there was a second book I wrote that was called The Eye of Fire, which followed on from that and involved further strange happenings. So that was the first couple of books I wrote, as I say, they were about the paranormal, but with historical undertones. And because I'd found, or with, along with others, this green stone, I'd managed to solve a uh, 400-old historical mystery, discovered an actual artifact, and that got me hooked on looking for historical artifacts <laughs> and other things associated with uh, mysteries of the past. Well, you know, I've I've found with with almost every author who's written a lot of books that there is some sort of compulsion, some sort of intuition, some sort of inspiration that leads them book to book to book to book, and and you know because you are hunting for these relics, is there do you just wait for the inspiration or does something tickle your fancy and you're off and running? And, and, and of course, that can be inspiration as well. But, but how are you drawn well, you said, to the topic? Well, as you said, basically one subject led on to another. The stone in legend, this green stone, which turned out to be a, a small, uh, uh, rather simple-looking jade 
stone sort of half egg shaped, which would quite clearly have once fitted in a ring, uh, which matched uh, pictures painted at the time of Mary Queen of Scots, uh, his ring on her finger in, in, in portraits. Um, and it was said, again, just in legend, to have once been set in King Arthur's sword Excalibur. Now, I assume that this was just a, a legend and there was no truth in it, but I decided to start investigating the King Arthur story. I mean, did King Arthur really exist? If so, where was his Camelot? Um, and that started me on the next book, which is called King Arthur, The True Story, because I tried to investigate as much as I could about who King Arthur really was, if he existed. Now, the King Arthur story we know today was written in the Middle Ages, and it's all yeah. about a king who fights dragons, there's magicians involved, damsels in distress, all the rest of it. Now, clearly that figure didn't exist. He was a, a, a romantic character in medieval novels and poetry called the, Rom the Arthurian Romances. But what I found fascinating, the more I looked into it, is that these stories were based on earlier accounts of a King Arthur who, according to earlier authors, was an historical figure with no connection with mythological creatures, dragons, witches, and all the rest of it. In fact, some of the uh, accounts go back to almost the time that King Arthur is said to have lived. Now, the romances tell us he lived around about 500 AD, and that was just after the Roman Empire collapsed. The Romans had ruled Britain. They'd left. The country was in turmoil. It was being invaded by the Anglo-Saxons from what is now Germany, and the separate tribes that Britain had broken into after Roman rule had collapsed um, couldn't fight them off, not separately. And Arthur was said to have been a leader, a king of one of these tribes, who united the country to repel the Anglo-Saxon invasion for a number of years. And in fact, he was the last true Briton to rule all of Britain before ultimately after his death, the Saxons took over the whole of what is now England. And this character, he, he's, he, I mean, some of the oldest references to him were written just a, a couple of hundred years after the time he was said to have existed. And what's fascinating is that they tell us that King Arthur, um, were, they just portray him in an, in an historical context without any flights of fancy. He was said to have fought a number of battles. He is said to have united the various tribes because he still retained the knowledge of warfare that he had learned from the last of the Romans. And he, he is described simply as a, as a warrior who united Britain and successfully uh, repelled the Saxons. Now, did this character really exist, or was somebody just having a fantasy a couple of hundred years after he died? Well, the interesting thing is that everybody who tried to discover who this man was found that in the few records that still survive from around 500 AD didn't mention an Arthur at all. They mentioned some people. Arthur didn't seem to come into it. But what turned out in the end to be fascinating is that 
Arthur wasn't actually his real name. It was a title. Now, in Brythonic, which was the language spoken by the Britons at the time, the word Arthur means the bear. In fact, it still survives in modern Welsh that derives from Brythonic. Arth is still the word for bear. So lots of warriors of uh, Celtic Britain, because the Britons were Celts before the Saxons took over, um, these particular warriors were all given names of honorific titles of animals, like uh, a fox, if they were, say, cunning or the eagle or whatever. Arthur was called the bear. Now, that's his title. So what was his real name? And what was interesting was that a monk called Gildas, who wrote within living memory of the time that Arthur was said to have lived, refers to a warrior called the bear who ruled a kingdom in central England called Powys, and that he ruled from a, a city by the name, what the Romans called Viraconium, and it was one of the last Roman cities to remain intact when England fell into a state of anarchy after the Romans left. And I thought, well, what is his real name? And at the British Library, I discovered that the person who ruled Paris at the time that this man, the bear, had ruled Paris, because this is what Gildas called him. He, he wrote in Latin, and he, he calls him Ursus, which means the bear in Latin. This man's real name was Owen Thangwin, and he did rule from this city of Viraconium in the centre of England at exactly the time Arthur is said to have lived. And what's more fascinating is that the city he ruled from was the most powerful city in Britain at the time. It's been excavated by archaeologists and shown it was completely refortified at the time Arthur is said to have existed by a man whose title was Arthur. So um, it seems that Viraconium, which is pretty much smack in the centre of England, could have been the historical Camelot. And Arthur really did exist. Is is there not a cathedral that is um, <clears throat> not 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 all the way there? Um, it, it, that's in ruins. That they are claiming that that Arthur is buried there. Isn't there a, a tombstone for Arthur and Guinevere, Guinevere on the on the grounds? No, that's somewhere different. Um, it's it, about a hundred and. 120 miles from where Viraconium stands. It's now um, just outside a village called Roxeter near the town of Shrewsbury in central England. But about 120 miles away to the southwest, there's a town called Glastonbury. And there's an abbey there where monks in the 1190s claimed to have unearthed the remains of an historical King Arthur uh, they dug up uh, two skeletons and a cross, and on that cross were the words to the effect of here, in Latin, uh, the words to the effect of here lies the renowned King Arthur and his wife Guinevere in the Isle of Avalon. And that, uh, Glastonbury, the town now, was once surrounded by water and is thought to have been where, the, where Arthur was ultimately buried. 
Wow. Well, you know, I, I think what you're doing is, is phenomenal, and it, it, it does give greater, um, greater weight to the story, but then if you're, if you're going into Arthur and Guinevere and uh, <clears throat> Excalibur, then you have to touch on Merlin. And if Arthur existed as Owen, did Merlin exist as well during the same time frame? Yes. Uh, um, to, just to give a little bit of a background, um, when the Arthurian romances were being written in the Middle Ages, Arthur was portrayed as a knight in shining armor, and so were his, um, you know, so were his knights. He was a king in shining armor, and his knights wore medieval plate armor, like you see in jousting competitions. And he was advised by this wizard, Merlin, and they, uh, they lived in a big, huge stone Gothic castle. Well, those kind of castles and that kind of armor and those kind of people didn't exist until after the 1100s. Back in 500 AD, when Arthur was said to have existed, um, warriors would have dressed more like we imagine Romans to dress. Their castles wouldn't have been huge stone um, stone castles, uh, Gothic castles of the Middle Ages, but it would have been wooden stockades and uh, earthen embankments more like the old Roman fortifications. And he wouldn't have lived in a, a great big cold castle. His residence would have been more like a uh, Roman villa, a fortified Roman villa. Now, excavations at Viriconium, the place I believe was the historical Camelot, where this historical Arthur lived, uh, have found that there was a palace, as they describe it, a Roman-style villa, at the centre of the city, um, built at exactly the time Arthur was around. And it was fortified, rebuilt, and it became pretty much the capital of Britain at the time because the capital in London and other major Roman cities, which were in the east of the country, had already been occupied by the Anglo-Saxons, which left Viriconium as the main city. So, again, this is more evidence that it could have been the historical Camelot. Now, so why in the Middle Ages was Arthur portrayed as a king in shining armour and his knights in elaborate plate armour and Merlin as a magician? Well, the reason is that the people of the, uh, the medieval period, the Middle Ages, the 11, 1200s, they had no idea what people a few hundred years before it looked like. In fact, if ever you see paintings of the time of say, the crucifixion of Jesus, you see the Roman soldiers standing around the cross dressed as soldiers of the Middle Ages. It's only more recently with archaeology and more historical research and documents coming to light over the last few hundred years that people know what Romans look like. They know what warriors of the 5th and 6th centuries look like. Um, so you cut, when we imagine the historical Arthur, it's not exactly what we would imagine as, as the Arthur that's portrayed in the films and the TV shows. So True. going back to Merlin, he may not have been 
a wizard or magician, as they imagined in the Middle Ages, but an advisor. Now, many of the Celtic warriors of the historical Arthurian period had advisors known as bards. Uh, bards also uh, composed poetry um, in praise of their kings and about the battles they fought. And eventually the name Bard became known as a, 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 a well-speaking poet in later years, or, or just the poet why Shakespeare is known as the Bard. But these Bards were also accredited, and according to various writers at the time, did have quite extraordinary healing powers. They knew the property of medicinal herbs. They were also experts at casting weapons they knew metallurgy and so these guys were pretty good to have as advisors and at the time arthur lived there is also recorded a, a figure by the name of merlin um and although he's not associated specifically with the arthur that i've discovered he's not particularly associated with any specific part of England. He, it, he's, um, the writings refer to him as living all over the place. He seems to have been a wandering character who may have become associated with the historical Arthur. So imagine an advisor who knows all about weapons, fighting techniques, healing, how to you know, be a physician of the time. That may have been the original Merlin. And incidentally, Merlin is also a title. It means, it meant in ancient Brythonic, the eagle. Um, what his real name was, possibly a man by the name of Ambrosius Aurelius, who was a Roman general who, after he retired, when the Roman Empire collapsed, advised um, various kings of Britain about what the Romans had done, their building techniques and so forth. And it may have been this Ambrosius who one particular author, a man named Nennius in the 800s, actually says was the historical Merlin. Well, is, is Merlin a title then as opposed yes, to Merlin actually a, a name? And in fact, there's, there's at least three separate Merlins mentioned in old manuscripts from the so-called Dark Ages. The Dark Ages is from when the Roman Empire collapsed in the late 400s up until about the year 1066 when uh, Anglo-Saxon Britain was invaded by the Normans from France and they brought new building techniques and new medieval technology with them and it went from what's known as the Dark Ages to the Middle Ages. In fact, some, it gets confusing because some people refer to the Middle Ages from the period from when the Roman Empire collapsed right the way until almost Shakespeare's time. But for convenience sake, the Dark Ages was a period from which few records survive and Britain was much less advanced than it had been in Roman times and it didn't really start to catch up until the Middle Ages. So um, it, it seems that... Uh, the Merlin recorded in the Middle Ages may have been this 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 same character that lived at the end of Roman rule. Well, what fascinated me was you have in 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 your Merlin book you have him being buried in the United States. So, which Merlin was it that was buried in the United States? 
Well, as I say, throughout the Dark Ages, we have a number of Merlins. One contemporary with the historical Arthur. Another one at the end of the 6th century, at the end of the 500s. And another one about halfway between the two. Now, this has led some scholars to assume that uh, uh, that, Arthur, that Merlin lived for an extraordinarily long period of time, to about 150 years of age, which um, they attribute, some of the more fanciful writings attribute that to his magic. But there seems to have been three characters with that title. It basically meant the head bard. They were, they were in fact, similar to what the Romans had described as druids, people who were like a priesthood of the Celts who did possess healing powers and they were even able to do things like hypnosis, what we would today call hypnotism. They were able to talk to people and take away pain, um, just like some hypnotists are supposed to do today. Um, uh -huh. So these druids... Um, that, Say there's three head druids called Merlin. Which one is it um, that ends up buried in America? We don't really know. But in Ireland, which is when Britain was eventually occupied by the Normans. I mean, Britain was, was kept being invaded by lots of different people. You've got the Romans, the Anglo-Saxons. You've got the Vikings. You've then got the Normans from France. And they were the last people to invade Britain. Um, but they drove the native Britons into what's now Wales, and then when the Normans invaded in 1066, shortly after, they invaded Wales, and a lot of the people who were bards or the later Druids moved across the sea into Ireland. And in Ireland, a story survives from the Dark Ages called The Voyage of Mervyn, which was an older version of the name Merlin, and, uh, or at least the Irish version of it. And that describes, and this is written somewhere around about the year 800, and it describes the, 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 the Roy. It's supposed to be based on an earlier story about somebody who lived during the 6th century, some point during the 500s, who went on a voyage with a number of ships to discover what they believed was Avalon somewhere across the Western Seas. They set off um, and one or two of them eventually came back and were able to describe this journey. Now, they say that Merlin was buried on an island somewhere on this new land they discovered. What's fascinating is this is, remember, before the Vikings discovered America in the, uh, around about the year 1000, and way before Columbus or any Europeans are supposed to have known about the American continent, they described firstly um, sailing across seas and seeing white mountains that were floating on the sea. Well, that sounds for all the world like icebergs. So they must have gone pretty far north. Then they arrived at a place that seems to have been Iceland because they described hot fountains of water bursting from the earth. Now, the geysers that are on Iceland are, are pretty rare. We know there's some at Yellowstone Park in America, but there's none of those known in, 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 uh, in Europe. So it seems that they must 
to describe this, they must have gone to Iceland. Cutting a long story short, they seem to have landed, then moved on to Greenland, and island hopped all their way to Canada. They describe features there like a great long white beach of perfectly white sand that does exist on Baffin Island in Canada. Then they went south to warmer climes, and it seems that from the descriptions that they eventually landed on an island which is off the coast of Maine, and that was where Merlin died and was buried. And the island that I identify as the possible location is Manana Island, um, just off the coast of Maine. Yeah, I, I'm fascinated at how you connect the dots. I mean, you seem to have been able to connect dots that no one else has connected um, in so many different ways and places. Um, I, you know, there's got to be something else at work here other than the fact that, of course, you're, you're an amazing historian and, you, you know, you, you have no problem with, you know, delving into the dusty records and stuff like that. But, but it just seems phenomenal that you've been able to put all these pieces together i mean people should you know read your books instead of history books because they seem to be so well documented and and you know gives one a different perspective as to what the real history actually was well people have said to me well how come you can find this stuff out and other people haven't it's basically because uh academic historians tend to be divided into different groups. I mean, people who investigate history, you've got the historians. Now, an historian looks into historical records. Then you've got archaeologists who discover the past by digging in the earth and analysing pottery discovered, weapons or anything else. And then you've got folklorists, people who look into myths and legends and try and see what the truth behind them is. But these people virtually never talk to each other. Historians really always argue with archaeologists. They both argue with folklorists. And you've really got one lot of people discovering a whole load of stuff, but other parts of the puzzle are missing. Like the archaeo- If it's historians, you've got the archaeological stuff missing and the folklore about which you can sometimes trace things that have just been remembered as legends. And because I was... What I, because I'm not an academic associated with a university, I'm coming from a journalistic background, I'm looking into, I, 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 I interview people from all three disciplines and more, scientists too, and see what they've discovered about something and piece it together like a jigsaw that other people just don't do. Because if somebody, for example, and, and there are subjects which are taboo, for an historian to investigate the story of King Arthur is almost a kind of academic suicide because he is considered to be, um, well, he's just some floaty fantasy figure, isn't he? We can't investigate him and we can't investigate the, the Holy Grail. It's obviously not real and, and so forth. Uh, and the same with archaeologists. They really are so scientific in what they do. They don't like to make any kind of guesswork. They only go on exactly what they've found and they say, this is what we've found, this is what we know, this is the date, we're not speculating. 
And uh, when it comes to the the, the the folklorists or people who investigate myths and legends, um, you might say, well, come on, you, know, you can't investigate myths and legends. Well, let me just give you an example about King Arthur, where a legend could really be based on some historical event that occurred. Take this story of Excalibur. Now, that is... Would have you'd have thought one of the things that was completely made up, like dragons and damsels in distress. But the story of the uh, a story of Excalibur is that uh, it was a, a magic sword. If Arthur wielded it, he couldn't be beaten in battle. When he eventually died, or when he was dying on the field of battle, so obviously the the sword failed him eventually. He asked yeah. one of his knights to go to a nearby lake and throw the sword into the lake. And when the knight throws the sword, the arm of a, um, a, a nymph-like figure, a sort of mermaid, if you like, um, the lady of the lake, her arm breaks from the surface, grabs the weapon and takes it down into the crystal depths. Now, most of us know this story and you'd say, well, that's just made up. But... Back in 500 AD, there was a tradition amongst Celtic warriors, of which Arthur was one, that when a king died, his sword, his prized possession, was cast into a sacred lake as, a, as an offering to a water goddess. So maybe this story had been told, and over the years it gradually became exaggerated. There's just one example, and there's many more, of where a legend can be traced back to some historical event. Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating because um, in your Wisdom Keepers book on Stonehenge, you brought, you brought out material that um, I found to be more valid and more logical than any of the other um, legends, if you will, connected to Stonehenge, um, you know, that, that I've read about. And Stonehenge is, you know, my, my grandfather and his brother in the early 1900s visited Stonehenge. And um, I have the pictures of them there, and it didn't look at all like it looks today. But um, it, it's, I've always wondered you know, what was the real purpose of Stonehenge? And you you have given in your book on, on Stonehenge um, a much fuller and richer suggestion as to what its purpose truly was. And, and I, I, you know, if you can share that with us, it would be great because I think it makes such great sense in the fact that the Druids, how they how they preserved their history and once written words came into play when the Romans invaded, the Druids kind of faded from existence because they didn't need their memories anymore just about. And so therefore they kind of went back into the woods. Yeah. When I investigated Stonehenge again, it's a case of one subject leading on to another line. When I was investigating the green stone, it led on to Arthur and, Ultimately, the Arthurian story led on to my interest in Stonehenge because um, 
one of the legends associated with Stonehenge is that it was built by Merlin, and he somehow magically transported the stones of Stonehenge from far away. Some of the legends said Ireland, some said Wales. And it is only recently that archaeologists have discovered that some of the stones that made up the original Stonehenge, because it was built in stages, actually did come from about 130 miles away in South Wales. They probably weren't tra magically transported by Merlin. They were erected throughout hundreds of years before the time that Merlin was supposed to be lived. But again, it's a legend that, yes, the stones did once, were once somewhere else and brought to Stonehenge. Why? I'll come on to in a bit. There was, an, there was another legend about Stonehenge, again, which turned out to have some, um, some historical validity. One of the legends is that once the devil resided in Stonehenge and in the medieval period, a monk, a friar, came to Stonehenge to try and exorcise the devil, to get him out of it. But he failed, and, as, and, and, the, and, and the devil got mad at him, and the friar began to um, flee. The devil picked up one of the huge stones, hurled it at the friar, just missed him, but grazed his heel on his foot. And there's a stone just outside the main ring of Stonehenge, a few uh, hundred yards away, called the heel stone. And that, that, that is the legend of to, as the whites call the heel stone. Originally, it was called the friar's heel because the stone is supposed to have hit the friar's heel just before he escaped. But the words frios heel in Greek, which was the language that the first people from Europe who visited Britain spoke, uh, the Greeks, frios heel means rising sun in Greek at the time. It means the rising sunstone. And in fact, on Midsummer's Day, if you stand in the middle of Stonehenge, the sun, the Midsummer sun, rises right over that stone. So consequently, a story of, that was written as the Frios Heel, the rising sunstone, became, well, Friar's Heel. And then somebody came up with the legend of the devil throwing the stone at the friar. So once again, you've got these legends that actually start to bring in some historical truth about Stonehenge that nobody in the past knew about. Now, what was Stonehenge built for? Again, it's been the subject of considerable controversy over the years. But if we go back to when it was built, um, it was built around about the, the one we see today, or at least the remains of the one we see today, um, was built around about four and a half thousand years ago, way, way before the period of King Arthur and Merlin. But the very first circle was built there about 500 years before that. And that just consisted of, uh, I think it was 52 stones in a ring. They were about six foot high and went down into the ground about a third as deep again. They were the ones that were brought from Wales. Probably um, they were, uh, because they've asked, the archaeologists have now found exactly where those stones, stones came from. They believe they were a stone circle that originally stood in the, near the Preseli Mountains in South Wales 
just a few miles from the coast. It's possible that when the people from that part of the country migrated to central southern England, where Stonehenge is, which is a much more fertile place, they moved the stones, possibly dragged them on rollers as far as the sea, and then put them on barges, sailed them around the coast, up the river systems to within just a few miles of Stonehenge, and then re-erected them in a place that they have now come to live. And then, of course, the later stones were added. Now, there are many stone circles. I mean, Stonehenge is the most famous, but there are many stone circles throughout the British Isles. There's still over a thousand that still survive in various states of preservation. There could have been many thousand going back to a period known as the megalithic era, named after the word megalith, which means large stone. And these stone circles um, are, are vary in size. In, in smaller communities, they were maybe just four feet high uh, and consisting of maybe 10 or 11 stones. Or, and then you get larger ones. And in fact, Stonehenge isn't the largest stone circle in the British Isles, built about the same time as the big Stonehenge we know today, around 2500 BC, around 20 miles north of Stonehenge, is the Avery Stone Circle. Now, Stonehenge is just a few hundred feet. Uh, it's, I don't know, it's about a, can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but it's about 100 feet across. Avery Stone Circle is almost half a mile across. It is so large, I think it's 1,000 feet in diameter. And if you... And around it is a huge, great embankment and ditch about 30 feet high and 30 feet deep. That is around a mile in circumference to walk all the way around it. It's huge compared to Stonehenge. Some of the stones weigh up to 40 tons, and many of them still survive. So why did the, the amount of effort it took for people to build these with what were just Stone Age tools antlers for picks, um, the shoulder blades of oxen for shovels. I mean, it must have taken them years to build this, and they had to hack the ditch around Avebury out of solid chalk and then build this embankment. And then uh, the stones came from about 20 miles away. They had to shape them, and there were hundreds of stones there. Um, so there were stone circles, and the... The larger and more prosperous the local tribe, say, or community, the larger the stone circles were. So they obviously had a very important purpose. And the latest research has shown that the stones tend to align with important celestial bodies, like the moon at certain times of the year, where the sun rises or sets, and so forth. You might get, for example, at Stonehenge, I mentioned this, heel stone outside the, outside the main stone circle where they can tell uh, the sun rises on midsummer's day. And then you've got other stones that align with the sun at other times of the year and with the moon phases and with uh, where the stars appear at different times of the year. So they are seen to be some sort of celestial calendar. But why? I mean, obviously, the most obvious answer is that they were for the growing and cultivation of crops. 
if you know when it's midsummer and when it's midwinter and days in between, you know the right time to sow, um, attend to and reap various crops. But they're so elaborate, some of them, that you just wouldn't need to. Many other societies throughout the world had managed to know when to uh, plant and reap crops without anything as sophisticated as that. But from Roman writing, where there was no form of writing in the, before the Romans turned up in the first century AD to tell us why these people built these stone circles. And they were built by various groups of people who migrated to Britain from elsewhere, who joined in and kept building it, even though their religions, based on their graves, and what we know about the grave goods, that they had different religious beliefs, but they continued to use the stone circles and help uh, repair and build new ones, suggests that it had a practical rather than religious purpose. And uh, the Romans tell us that the people who tended to these stone circles when they arrived were called the Druids, they were said to be the library of knowledge for the ancient Britons because they had no form of writing. So they relied on these uh, communities of people to um, develop memory techniques using what we would now call monomic uh, techniques, ways of remembering things like uh, stage performers remember many, many packs of cards you know exactly after just seeing it once and they use seemingly what we would now call hypnosis and also rhyming it helps to remember things if you rhyme them if if you create a rhyme or a song these people together were the collective memory of the uh, the, the pre-roman peoples and they seem to have used the stone circles to know exactly when to plant and, 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 and uh, reap certain specific crops. And based on what we find in their graves, they were um, harvesting and, and, and growing medicinal plants. That's why they needed to be so accurate, because take, for example, uh, mistletoe, which was something the Romans said that they used a lot. If you eat various parts of the mistletoe plant, uh, leaves, roots, stems, uh, berries, at certain times of the year, they're poisonous. Other times, they're useless. It's only at particular times that these plants become useful as medicines. And this, the, the very specific times that um, are, are, are calculatable by standing in the middle of a stone circle, saying, oh, that star's there, it's just touching that stone right, it's now time to cut this particular plant, and we can use that for uh, medicinal purposes. And that's what it seems Stonehenge was used for. And from what the Romans tell us, when they arrived with writing uh, in the first century AD and a little bit before that, the Greeks, these, the, the, the Druids were able to cure all sorts of things like um, you know, um, congestion of, 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 of the lung, things like bronchitis, they had analgesics and pain relief. They had ways of curing stomach pains. They even, according to one Roman writer called Pliny the Elder, were able to cure cancer. And that is quite astonishing because they use parts of the mistletoe tree, uh, plant that have only recently been found to be useful in chemotherapy. 
In fact, they knew how to cure things that we're only discovering today. And it was by using places like Stonehenge as calculators or astronomical calendars that they were able to do this. So if you like, Stonehenge, it's not a burial ground, although some people were buried there. It's not a temple. It is basically a healing sanctuary, or if you like, a prehistoric hospital. Amazing. <clears throat> well, and, and you know, we, we've tried to discern, you know, its purpose and its direction. I think you've come, in my opinion, you've come closest to giving a valid reason for it than, than anyone else has. Um, it, makes, it makes great sense to me. And when, when you realize that there was no town or no village there and that, that people, you know, I, I, you would have thought that there had been a reason for it being put there and, and yet no one's come up with, it, with any reason that, that, you know, holds any validity or that there's no archaeological proof for it, which has always fascinated me. They've found corridors you know, that, that were passageways for processionals or whatever, but, but they've never come across a reason for its existence. And, and I think you, you have come closer than, than anybody else has as far as I'm concerned. Um, always open well, to, was, you know, somebody... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, there, there seems to, as time went by, because the, the Druids and, and their predecessors that used these stone circles were considered um, miraculous. And I think that they used this to, to gain uh, influence. And so as time went by, these stone circles became more elaborate and the surrounding uh, avenues of stones were built as kind of processional ways of many of the stone circles have these uh, standing stones in um, parallel rows of standing stones and embankments leading to them, which were like processional ways so that people, they, they took on a religious significance too, but it wasn't their initial purpose. And why haven't archaeologists discovered this? Because they look, remember I said before, they are people who are scientists primarily, investigating how old something is, what something, uh, what people lived like at the time, and so forth. And there's, nothing, there's, no, there's no writings of the time to tell us what they were building these for. What they failed to do, the archaeologists, were look into the writings of Romans and Greeks telling us exactly what these things were used for. And the historians were basically saying, well, this is just the Romans exaggerating without knowing what the archaeologists were doing. And then you've got the folklorists with various legends, like I said, about the friar's heel and the, and the, the, the story of the stones being moved from elsewhere and so forth, that basically you put that all together and you've got the answer, or at least an answer that I think makes sense. Well, you know, so, so apply the same philosophy. To say, I, I think, you know, first of all, you're so fortunate to be living in a part of the world that has so much history attached to it. Um, I mean, you're close to everything. Uh, so, <clears throat> excuse me, pollen got to me. Um, 
So, so the the next two topics that are that are so all always fascinating to everyone, of course, the Holy Grail and the Ark of the Covenant. And again, when you when you go not only from the historical but from the archaeological and the mythology, mythology, you come up with a greater understanding of the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Grail. And you know, it makes more sense. Yeah, again, it was one thing led to another. I'm investigating King Arthur. When I've done that, I thought, well, what about the Holy Grail? You know, I'd already discovered that there might have been some truth in the Excalibur legend. Is there any truth in the Grail legend? The story that became most popular during the Middle Ages is that the Holy Grail was said to have been the cup used by Jesus at the Last Supper before he was crucified and that he drank from this and... According to early Christian tradition, it's not mentioned in the Bible. I mean, the Bible tells us that Jesus had a cup that he passed around, but it doesn't tell us what happened to it. But according to early Christian tradition, this cup was obtained by Joseph of Arimathea, who was one of Jesus's followers. Uh, The Bible does mention him. It tells us that Joseph was a rich merchant and that he, but being a follower of Jesus, allowed Jesus to be buried in a tomb that he'd actually prepared for himself. And that's the tomb that Jesus was supposed to have risen from, according to the Bible. But in the early Christian tradition, this Joseph of Arimathea somehow obtained the cup used by Christ at the Last Supper. And while Jesus was on the cross um, being crucified, he collected a few drops of Christ's blood in this cup, which then gave it some sort of holy mystical powers that if you drank from it you could be cured from illnesses or in some stories gain eternal life or prolong your life now when the christians were persecuted after jesus's death joseph according to these early traditions um escaped palestine when he he was a merchant and he and he had a he had a, a a ship that he travelled around the coast of Europe in, and finally crossed to Britain. Now he settled in Britain. The reason being, all of France, known by the Romans as Gaul and surrounding countries, the Middle East was all under Roman control. Britain at this point, which was like 32 AD or thereabouts, hadn't yet been invaded by the Romans. They only invaded uh, in the um, in, I think it was, let me get it right, uh, AD 64 and over the following couple of decades. So at the time Jesus died and Joseph and Matthias supposedly came to Britain, Britain was free of Roman rule. So he came here and he founded an early Christian community, bringing this cup with him. Now, ultimately, he hid this cup, which became known as the Holy Grail. And in, in the Arthurian romances, it is later sought by King Arthur and his knights when Arthur falls ill as a way of curing Arthur. And then it's hidden again. Now, that's the story that was most well-known. But it wasn't... The the word grail really was associated with a number of mystical artefacts that were somehow associated with Jesus during... um, during the Middle Ages. Now, in the Middle Ages, 
relics were big business. Anything that belonged to a saint or somebody that had been involved in the Bible story, the Virgin Mary, Jesus, one of the disciples, anything that had once belonged to, particularly their bones, was considered um, holy items. And they were kept in abbeys, churches, monasteries. And in Britain, many of the um, churches and monasteries, abbeys, are named after a particular saint. St. Joseph, St. Mary, St. St. Agatha, um, you name it, St. Mark. And they were named after those saints originally because they were supposed to contain relics associated with that particular saint, often bones that were supposed to be theirs. But if they didn't have the bones, an item that they'd once possessed. Um, now, Jesus himself was said to have ascended bodily to heaven, ultimately. So there were no bones. So it was items associated with Jesus, particularly this cup that is said to have held his blood, which was the most sought-after item. And many knights during the Middle Ages, between the Crusades, when they had nothing else to do, would basically be hired by abbeys, monasteries, and cathedrals to go in search of holy relics, to bring them back, so that they churches would attract more pilgrims who went there in the hope to be cured of illnesses, gain spiritual enlightenment, and so forth. And, of course, the most quested after item was the cup used by Jesus. But the earliest stories, starting in 1190, um, that still survive, um, talk about the grail not being the cup used by Jesus at the Last Supper, but being a plate, a platter, upon which a, ma a mass wafer is served. That was written by a French poet called Chrétien de Troyes. He says it's a plate, not a cup. Um, what, where this plate came from, the poem is incomplete in its present form, so we don't know how Jesus is associated with the plate, but apparently he was. Hence, it's called a grail. The word at the time that seems to have specifically been applied to a relic that was associated somehow with Jesus' blood in some way. Another writer from Germany called, uh, called Wolfram von Eschenbach in around 1200 says that the, that the, that the grail is a magic stone um, and it's possessed by the Knights Templar. Now, how this stone, again, is associated with Jesus' blood, who knows? Perhaps his blood is supposed to have fallen at it on the foot of the cross. But it wasn't until shortly after that that a, a, a Burgundian poet from Burgundy in France, uh, a man by the name of Robert de Baron, wrote the story about Joseph of Arimathea bringing the cup that was used at the Last Supper to Britain. And that became the most popular and hence the grail that we all know and love. But in more recent years, you've got people like uh, Dan Brown associating the, uh, the Holy Grail with making, making it a symbolic reference to the bloodline of Jesus. But in, I thought, well, let's try and find out what the very earliest story of the grail was. And interestingly, it doesn't concern Joseph of Arimathea, but another of Jesus' followers, Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene was, um, the Bible tells us that uh, once she anointed Jesus' feet with a holy oil that she had in a small perfume jar, she then took this same 
cup, this same small ointment jar, to Jesus' tomb when he was laid to rest to anoint his body with spices, which was the Jewish tradition at the time. When she got there, she discovers Jesus risen. She sees him in the garden, and um, when she sees him, he shows her his hands with the holes where the nails went through in them, and some blood from these is 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 she collects in this small ointment jar she had taken to the tomb. That little ointment jar, which had a, a, a cap or a top to it, became the grail in some of the earliest grail stories, predating any of the ones in the Middle Ages, the earliest dating from the 700s that still survive. So the earliest grail concerns a woman collecting Jesus' blood, and the same story is told, she brings it to Britain and it's hidden. Now, why then do we have Joseph of Arimathea coming into it? Well, during the Middle Ages, women didn't get a good lot, really, in, in, in stories. Even in Shakespeare's time, in the 1500s, women weren't allowed to act on stage, and the parts of, let's say, Juliet were played by men. Women in the Middle Ages, some elements of the church, even debated whether they had souls. So the idea that one of Jesus' followers, a woman, was um, in that, you know, had... Uh, possessed the, 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 the grail and brought it to Britain w was pretty um, unpalatable so that's probably why the story was changed to a man doing it but in all the early pictures of Mary Magdalene and still right the way through the Middle Ages and into modern times when you see paintings painted of her she's always shown holding a jar and, at, and sometimes it's a small ointment jar. Later on, it became shown as a, a jewel-encrusted golden goblet. Um, but she's known as the lady with the alabaster jar because the Bible tells us that the jar she used to uh, anoint Jesus' feet uh, with the oil and uh, took to the tomb um, was a... Uh, what, what they describe as an alabastrum, which was an alabaster, uh, a form of green onyx, an alabaster jar. And this, it seems, was the original Holy Grail. And I thought, wow, you know, where could this have ended up? And it was that I decided to try and search for. And it turned out that one of the earliest Grail stories from... All, in all the earliest Grail stories in Britain... You have the Grail in, in the Arthur stories being discovered in a place called the White Castle in the White Town. Now, there is a place called the White Town, not very far from Viraconian, the place that I'd identified as Camelot. It's about uh, 10, 20 miles away. It's now called Whittington, which is basically the old English for White Town, Whittington. And in the middle of this small village there is a castle known locally as the White Castle, Whittington Castle. It's called the White Castle because it's made of light-coloured limestone, where other castles in the area are red, made of brick. So, you've got a White Castle in the White Town, not far from the place where Arthur is, the historical Arthur appeared to have lived, and in all the early Grail stories, that's where the Grail seems to have been found. And in 1220, a story was written called uh, Fitz, The Adventures of Fulk Fitzwarren. And Fulk Fitzwarren is an historical figure 
who owned the White Castle in the early 1200s. And astonishingly, when I looked into the history of him, he claimed to have possessed the grail, and not any grail, the cup of Mary Magdalene, also known as the Marian chalice, which means of Mary, or the chalice of Magdalene. So it seems that this was the original Holy Grail. And somebody who really existed claimed to have had it in the place where the early romances say it was hidden. And you found it. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, well, I, I personally didn't, didn't find it. Um, what happened was that this guy, Fulk Fitzwarren, um, I, I wanted to know what had happened. I mean, did he hand it on to his family? They claimed to have been the guardians of this cup. The last of them was a man by the name of Thomas Wright, who lived in the mid-19th century, in the mid-1800s. He actually showed this cup to people, and he, he was an historian. He actually, inter interestingly, was the first person to, uh, first modern archaeologist, if you like, to excavate Viraconium, the place I believe was the historical Camelot. And what he did was that um, he showed people this cup, and he was he was like a, an amateur historian um, and an antiquarian, as they used to call them. And he said this was the original Holy Grail. Of course, none of his colleagues believed him. When he no. died, before he died, he had no heir to hand it on to. So what he decided to do was to hide it and leave a series of clues as to where it was. I suppose he may sort of he may have seen himself as some kind of latter day Merlin. It was his personal epitaph. And what he did was he he, he wrote a, a, a small a short poem called Sir Gawain and the Red Knight, which was set at a place called Hawkstone Park, very close to Whittington and Viraconium, a place called Hawkstone Park, near where he lived at a village called Hodnet, about two miles away. And the book, basically, is a story of this knight searching for this cup, eventually discovering it, and then he stands on the battlements of somewhere he describes as the Red Castle, which is a real place, a real medieval castle, at Hawkstone Park, and he contemplates hiding it. That's where the poem ends. But it ends with the lines the shepherd's songs to guide the way, the horn was blown, the treasure lay, and that's it. Well, I examined this quite some time, and one thing I noticed was on the title page, he'd written something like, I can't remember the exact words now, but it was something like, for those who have, for those who have eyes to see, um, there is a mystery under it, or something worse to that effect. But on the bottom... There were two lines of Roman numerals. Now, I at first assumed this was some sort of prince's um, markings or something, but there were two lines of Roman numerals, and I thought maybe that's a clue that he's referring to. Um, his family had tried to solve this, and most of them thought he had just made it up, and others thought there was nothing in it, and the few that had tried to find follow his clues never got anywhere. So I thought, okay. What could these numerals, these numbers, refer to? 
Now remember, at the back of the book it says when when Gawain decides he's going to hide uh, the the Grail, the cup of, of Mary Magdalene, he says um, the shepherd's songs to guide the way. Well, I realise what are shepherd's songs? Well, in the Bible, the Old Testament has the Psalms. And the Psalms were written, or supposedly, according to Christian tradition, by King David, the first king of Israel, who had begun life as a humble shepherd before he became the Israelite hero when slaying the giant Goliath. Shepherd songs, songs written by a shepherd, the Psalms. The Psalms are all numbered. Psalm number 1, 10, 20, and so on. And they all have verses, 1, 2, 3, four, five, six, etc. So I thought, what about if the first, cause, because it was the same number of Roman numerals on the first line and the second, I thought, well, if it, maybe the first line refers to the number, the name, the number of the psalm, and the second number underneath it refers to the verse. And when I did this, I went to the red castle where Gawain had stood at the end of the book, and the, the, the first line actually, the first psalm actually refers to a shepherd blowing a horn. And that had been written on the last page. The horn was blown, the treasure lay. And I thought, wow, that's coincidental. The second <laughs> yeah. psalm, following the same logic, read, lead me to the rock. Oh, it, I think it was lift up my eyes into the hills and then lead me to the rock which is higher than I. You'll have to excuse me if I'm not getting this completely right because it's been some time since I've read it. But oh, it yeah. definitely said, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And the only rock that's higher than where I stood was right opposite a little valley, uh, a big white cliff, and on top of it, there was a ruined arch of like a, a, a chapel. And it said, lead me to, the, to, to thy uh, holy place, or worse than that effect. And I thought, well, that's a holy place on top of the only rock that's higher than I am. I went up there. Um, when I finally, uh, the next verse told me to look below, and right below this arch, and that time it was all covered in brambles and undergrowth. I managed to get my way through this undergrowth and find the entrance to a tunnel, a cave. It turned out to be a man-made cave. A man-made, uh, an artificial tunnel, perhaps even woman-made. People always say man-made. I think I should say person-made, but an artificial <laughs> tunnel that led into this, uh, into this, quite a way into inside the hillside, until eventually I entered this like dark chamber, and in there there were um, a couple of statues um, that were partly broken, quite tall, about four feet high. One was of a uh, lion, the other was of an eagle, minus its head. You could tell it was an eagle because of the wings and so on. And uh, I had discovered from the people who owned the property that there had once been four statues that stood there, a bull, a lion, an eagle, and an angel. A couple of them had got lost over the years. Um, I kept following the caves until I reached the other side of the hill. And the next verse, and out into the sunshine, and the next verse read, lead me down the valleys. And there was this great ravine in front of me. I followed that. Ultimately, one of the, the, the verse read, uh, I came upon the house of God. And there in front of me was a church. And it said, I enter the house of the Lord. So I went into the doorway. And the next verse, 
I looked upon my right hand and beheld, and I looked up and there was this great big stained glass window, which turned out to have been put there by Thomas Wright himself at the same time as he published this poem. He'd actually paid for it to be designed and installed in the local church where he lived. And it showed the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But one of these figures, the John figure, was clearly a woman. And I know that the John figure, uh, the gospel writer, is often depicted looking somewhat effeminate, but this figure had clearly breasts. It looked exactly like a figure of Mary Magdalene um, that had uh, that, been, uh, that, that, that was in a church in, in, in Rome. So I thought, well, it's depicting four of the gospel writers, one of them as Mary Magdalene. And that's the person whose chalice I was looking for. And in her hand, she held a chalice where the other three were holding the books that they had written for the New Testament. And then what really grabbed me was right above these four figures were four symbols that represented the four gospel writers, a bull, a lion, an eagle, and an angel, exactly the same figures that had stood as statues in the middle of these caves I'd already been led through. And right above the Mary Magdalene figure's head was the eagle. So I thought, wow, I've been led here. I've been led to see these statues. What if I go back? What if it's hidden in the eagle statue? This is when it got disappointing because the statue was fairly broken up. And I discovered from the owners that the statues were once on plinths and back in 1920, a local land owner uh, by the name of Walter Langham had tried to move these statues so he could put them in his garden. Um, it, the, the attempt failed. Um, I think got two of them away, but the eagle statue fell, broke open. And there was an interesting article in a paper from the time that said that a fascinating thing was that in the base of the statue, they found a little alcove or recess in which was hidden a small green cup that seemed to resemble a mustard pot. I thought, what? That's what Mary Magdalene's cup's supposed to look like. It's all, I've followed all these clues and it's been found in 1920. Ultimately, I managed to trace the descendants of Walter Langham and his great, great, great or whatever granddaughter who uh, lived in uh, the town of Rugby in uh, the East Midlands of England, um, I got in touch. I said, have you still got that cup that was found? Because it was such an unusual thing. I said, yeah, I think we've still got it in the attic somewhere. I went round to see them, and in the attic, which was full of junk, um, wrapped up in 1940s newspaper, amongst all sort of old plates and crockery and cups and so forth, she opened up and there was this small, green, old-looking, very worn-down cup that looked for all the world like a thick egg cup. And I thought, wow, is that it? And I said, can I take this to a museum? They agreed. I took it to the British Museum and I didn't say, is this the grail? <laughs> I just said, no. this has been found under rather strange circumstances. Can you identify it? And after a few minutes, they said, yeah, that looks like a, a Roman scent jar. And I said, well, they said, I said, how do you know? And they took me to the exhibit of other Roman scent jars from you know, a couple of thousand years ago, and they were identical. 
And they said it would want to have a top to it, but obviously that's been lost. Ultimately, they figured out that it was around about 2,000 years old. That is the time that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were said to live. It was made from green alabaster, green onyx, alabaster. And they said that the stone it made was made from came from the Palestine region. So it dated from the right time. It came from the right, you know, area. I mean, wow. So was this the Holy Grail? Who knows? But um, it certainly fitted. It certainly was a cup. I mean, there's no doubt it was the cup that Thomas Wright had. He was a descendant of the people who claimed to have the Holy Grail. And the original Holy Grail was said to be this small Roman scent jar, if you like, or a scent jar from Roman times that Mary Magdalene had collected Jesus' blood in. And, um, well, everything fitted. So there I had found an object which could be the historical Holy Grail, the Chalice of Magdalene. Well, hopefully it's being treated with a little more respect now. Yeah, they eventually, they actually, what happened is when the, when the story broke, um, the, the, the newspapers were extremely interested when my book came out, which was originally entitled The Search for the Grail. It, it was later published in America as The Chalice of Magdalene. But when the book came out, um, it was, um, there was publicity all over the place. I mean, most of the national papers in this country covered it. It was on the news. It was... And it got big um, publicity, so much so that the people who owned it were so... They didn't believe for one minute. They thought it was some Victorian mustard pot or something, or an old egg <laughs> cup, although it was a bit too thick to be that. And they just said, look, keep these journalists off our back and you can have it. So I got to keep it. So at this point... There was a journalist got in touch with me from Italy. In fact, it was a film crew came over originally from Italy. Um, sort of, uh, you know, big, you know, Italian news channel. They got a film crew to come over. And at the time, I was, you know, my previous book to that I hadn't sold too well. I, was, I hadn't got much money. I was living in a rather run-down apartment. Um, and they wanted to meet me at my home. And I thought, oh, I don't want them to see how I live. It's awful. But when I came in, the, the, one of the producers, the, the, a lady came in, and when she saw how I was living, she said, oh, my God. And I thought, oh, they just think I'm some kind of loon. She says, this is just how Jesus would have lived. I thought, what? Oh <laughs> she thought I was living like this deliberately because I was some kind of holy person. Anyway, after that, broke story broke in Italy there was churches and cathedrals all over the Catholic world as far away as Mexico South America Italy Spain you name it all saying no this guy in England hasn't found the grail we've got it in our church and so on so some journalists from an Italian newspaper went to the Vatican and wanted their um, opinion on this and they said you know you know you know, is this guy, has he found the grail or which one of these grails in all of these churches, which is the real one? And a, a, a spokesman for the Vatican had said, His Holiness, the Pope, is considering all of these and he will make an announcement later in the week. And apparently at that time anyway, this is Pope John Paul II, the Polish Pope, 
Um, I assume he may have read my book because it had been published in Polish. I assume he speaks English anyway. Uh, and it had been published in Italian. Um, whether he read it or not, I don't know. But on that Friday afternoon, he came out onto the... Uh, he would normally come out onto the balcony overlooking St. Peter's Square in the Vatican and make various announcements and prayers and so on. And when he came out, he said, none of these are the real grail because we've got it in the Vatican, which is the first time <laughs> I've ever known them, them say that. And they never produced it as proof. So that was the story. Unbelievable. And so you just, you have it in your cabinet at home? Uh, I keep it. It's in a it's in a bank uh, safety deposit box, but um, I've, I've access I would access to it so. one Amazing. But uh, if anyone uh, wants to see what it looks like, I mean, if you go on my website, which is grahamphillips.net, uh, or just look up Graham Phillips author online, and you'll find my website. There's um, on the front page. There's pictures of the covers of all of my books. If you just click on the one saying the chalice of magdalene you'll then go to um, a number of pages you know it's all at the bottom there's like one two three four etc so you can just go to the next page and the next page um you'll see uh, all the, the locations i've mentioned plus the stories there and you'll see all the locations and how i followed the clues and in there there is uh, a, a, there's pictures of, of the cup that i discovered i i think it's phenomenal and and probably has greater credence because you show it than the Vatican that won't. So, um, well, they may have something they think is it, but they didn't give any further explanation. I did press them after this for further, um, for, 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 you know, to, to, to say, well, this is fascinating. But the grail that they claim to have was the cup used by Christ at the Last Supper, which is a different grail. So they basically hadn't contradicted what I was saying, actually. But what was fascinating is that I did another book after this, um, getting interested in the life of Jesus. I wrote the one person that uh, seems to we know very little about is the Virgin Mary, Jesus' mother. So I wrote uh -huh. a book all about her um, and how I thought that in certain medieval stories, the Virgin Mary was considered to be the guardian of the holy grail but um i kind of like dismissed that because i think that was added on a bit later but what became fascinating is that i realized that until relatively recently uh, and the bible doesn't actually tell us what happened to um the virgin mary jesus's mother after his death um she's living with one of the disciples in jerusalem and that's it we're not we're told what yeah. happens to <clears throat> all the other disciples, but not to the Virgin Mary. She, um, but an early Christian story grew up that um, she was buried in a tomb in the Valley of Jehoshaphat in Jerusalem. And that became a holy shrine when the Roman Empire adopted Christianity as the state religion in, the, the, in 325 AD. And the emperor who adopted Christianity, Constantine the Great, his mother, Helena, basically said, right, this is the tomb where the Virgin Mary was buried. And um, pilgrims flocked there. And 
the, the Catholic Church pretty much ran this place for many, many years um, and made a lot of money out of it. People weren't charged, I don't think, to go in, but you gave donations. And anybody who wanted to be healed or something by being close to where Virgin Mary was buried would obviously wouldn't be uh, stingy with how much they gave. So they had this tomb there. There was another story that grew up that Virgin Mary ascended bodily to heaven like Jesus had. And it's called the Assumption, assumed into heaven. So in which case she couldn't have a tomb, or at least not one with a body in it. So there was, it was left up to the, to the decision of the individual churchgoer to whether Mary was buried in the Valley of Jehoshaphat or whether she went to heaven. Until 1950, when the Pope at the time said that it was Christian law, it was a canon to believe that the Virgin Mary had ascended to heaven. She hadn't had a tomb. And that was made church doctrine. So suddenly, the people who ran this, uh, this tomb and attracted lots of pilgrims and presumably plenty of money in Jerusalem were wondering what to do. And so they basically eventually ended up either giving it or selling it to the Greek Orthodox Church, who still believed that the Virgin Mary was buried there. And... The whole thing was pretty much hushed up. Um, the whole story about this I wrote in a book called The Virgin Mary Conspiracy. Um, the word conspiracy back then, this was back in the 90s, the, or around 2000, the word conspiracy then wasn't a dirty word. It simply meant what it was. A number of people got together to cover something up or to, uh, or, 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 or to, or to agree on a particular story. It didn't mean like it does today, like people believing uh, the world's flat or whatever else, um, or that Area 51 has got hundreds of UFOs in it. Um, the word conspiracy was okay to use then, but I regret using the title Virgin Mary Conspiracy now. Anyway, it was about the conspiracy in the church to cover this whole story up about uh, the fact that they'd once made money from this tomb. And so this is, this is the story I wrote. This is, you know, the, the investigation I put together in, in, in the book. Um, the, the same Pope basically got to hear about this. Now, my, this book started to, started to be um, in the libraries of many um, Catholic schools around the world because there was quite a lot in there of great interest that we don't know in the Bible. But the Pope, remembering I was the man who claimed to find the Grail, decided, hold on a minute, we're not having this guy's books in our, in, our, in our school libraries, and said, no, that book's banned. But in order to ban a book from a library in the Catholic Church's doctrine at that time, the author had to be excommunicated. Now, I'm not even a Catholic, but I suddenly got a... A, 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 a phone call from an Italian journalist who said, Graham, do you know you've been excommunicated? I said, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, you've been excommunicated. So your books, none of them, the one about the Holy Grail, the one about Mary, it cannot be in any, in any Catholic school. I said, but I'm not even communicated. How can I be excommunicated? He said, well, about once a month, the church goes through a list of all the books it doesn't like and just ticks off everyone who's to be excommunicated. They really haven't got the time to check if they're Catholics, and they just blanketly excommunicate the lot. <laughs> so technically speaking, I'm not even allowed in a Catholic church. Oh, dear. Well, I'm sure that's 
that's a great disappointment for you. Um, you 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 tend to just just find the most amazing information and the most amazing. I mean, even the Moses Legacy book. That's that was fascinating. Yeah, that was a search for. Again, this is something that uh, the for, for many years uh, the church uh, believed that, that, that in in the in the Old Testament it tells us that after the Israelites escaped captivity in Egypt, they went into the wilderness east of Egypt, um, into the Sinai wilderness, where they came across a mountain known in some parts of the Bible as Mount Sinai and other parts as Mount Horeb. It's called both names. Um, and it says that here um, God revealed himself to the Israelites. Moses went up the mountain um, and came back with the Ten Commandments. He also came back with the instructions of how to build the Ark of the Covenant out of gold that they seem to have um, smuggled out of Egypt. And it's this big gold box um, chest, if you like, um, that's carried by a couple of poles through it by uh, priests. And on top there are two, there are the effigies of two golden angels. And it was in that that the Ten Commandments, the most holy objects that the Israelites possessed, were kept. Um, the Ark is then said to have all sorts of miraculous powers, um, like. Um, I don't know, it defeats all of the um, the armies of the Israelite enemies uh, by some kind of, I don't know, rays, like some high-powered laser coming from it. And most interestingly, when uh, certain prophets and priests stand next to it, they can hear God and they can commune with God. So as it says in the, uh, as Indiana Jones says in the, um, the, uh, the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's like a radio for talking to God. Now, all this happens at a place called the, uh, the Mountain of God, Mount Horeb. Now, when the Roman Catholic Church became um, the, the state religion of the Roman Empire in 325 AD, um, enforced by the Emperor Constantine, his mother, Helena, who had been a Christian before, she was the one who decided Mary Mag uh, the Virgin Mary was buried in Jerusalem. She basically decided that Mount uh, the, 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 the Mount Sinai was a mountain in southern Egypt, in eastern Egypt called um, Jebel Musa. The later was called that anyway, the Mountain of Moses. And there's still a, a monastery beneath it, St Catherine's Monastery, and that's the place where many pilgrims still go today. But it doesn't tell us in the Bible where the, uh, the Mount Sinai is. So I decided, well, let's have a look what the actual Bible does say and see if I can figure out where it is. Well, firstly, it doesn't have anything to do with this southern part of Egypt, that southeastern part of Egypt. It says that the first time Moses goes there is when he sees the burning bush from which God talks to him. And... That's when he tells him to go back to Egypt and free the Israelite slaves. It, it, it calls it there Mount Horeb, one of the names for the mountain, or the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And he tell, it, Moses is living in a place called Midian, and it tells us he went round the back 
side of the desert with because uh, he was working as a shepherd at the time with his herd of goats. Well, the backside of the desert it's referring to puts it in a, a place called Edom at the time, southern Jordan in today's map. And later on, we're told that uh, when Moses is leading the Israelites through the um, through the desert, they uh, they are dying of thirst, and he performs the miracle by knocking his staff against uh, a rock and a a, mis a magical uh, a, a sacred spring uh, of water issues forth and the Israelites don't die of thirst. Now, in one account, it doesn't tell us, it, it, sorry, in one account, it tells us that this is at a place called Kadesh, which is actually at the entrance, a kind of gorge that enters the land of Edom, which is a kind of valley kingdom. And but the same story is told elsewhere in the Bible about this miraculous stream incident. And it's said to be at the foot of the mountain of God, at Mount Horeb. So we're told specifically, and I can't believe why anybody hasn't figured this out before, that the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, is at the entrance of this gorge to Edom which was later called Petra in southern Jordan, where in Roman times a, a city was built, which is still there today as a tourist site. And when you go there, actually at the entrance, where this miraculous stream was supposed to be um, created, there is a, a shrine built by the Bedouin people of the area, which is called a Musa, the Shrine of Moses. And there's a rock there, and a stream and a, and, a, and a little holy well, which is said to be, by the local people, where Moses struck his staff to create this miraculous stream. And above it rises a mountain called Jebel Musa, which must be, according to the Bible, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. Why nobody had found that before, I have no idea. Well, yeah, it does, it does make sense. And... Um, you know, you know, you're be, you you are made to wonder. Again, it's a matter of people aren't talking to one another to to put the pieces together. Um, well, yeah, and, and again, this then led me again. One book leads to another. I thought, well, one thing that was supposed to have been. Um, uh, made at Mount Sinai was the Ark of the Covenant, another artifact for which people have been searching for centuries, like the Knights Templars and Indiana Jones goes in search of it and finds it in the first Indiana Jones film. So I thought, okay, uh -huh. what about that? Where did it end up? Well, according to, there are two, and this is where, again, we, it's quite strange because Two books that were taken out of the original Bible that still survive in the Catholic Bible, but not the Protestant one, were two Old Testament uh, texts known as the first and second book of Maccabees. Quite why they were taken out, I don't know, but they still exist. And in the second book of Maccabees, it tells us that the Ark of the Covenant um, was taken from the temple in Jerusalem, where it had remained for many hundreds of years, um, when... Jerusalem was invaded by the Babylonians in, if I remember rightly, 597 BC. The Ark is taken to and hidden in the mountain of God, 
Mount Sinai in a cave. So, well, I knew the last resting place of the Ark of the Covenant, where most people seem to think it ended up in Ethiopia or somewhere else. Clearly, in a couple of books that have been taken from the Bible, it is hidden at what I believe was Jebel Madaba, the mountain above the spring in Petra, southern Jordan. So when I looked into that, I discovered that some crusader knights, the Knights Templars, in around about, it must have been, I think it was 11, mid-1100s, um, they were left there to guard the pass. This Remember I said that, that there was a, a ravine there that was an entrance to this valley kingdom. They were left to guard this pass against the uh, the, the enemy Saracens that they were fighting. Um, while they were there, they supposedly found a number of treasures, including a large golden chest. Now, they don't say it's the Ark of the Covenant, but a large golden chest. Interestingly, these Knights Templars, when they eventually abandoned the Holy Land, when the Saracens took it back over Jerusalem and all that area, came back to where they originated, and that was that particular group came from England. And they came from not far from Stratford-upon-Avon of Shakespeare fame. They came from a place called Temple Hardwick, named after them. And there they built a what's known as a preceptory, which is a kind of cross between a monastery, because a lot of the Templars were warrior monks, a cross between a monastery and a, and a military barracks. And there they kept this large gold chest, which they believed was from the old writings that still survive from the Middle Ages, a great holy item that they brought back from uh, Petra. Um, and they kept it in this, in, in, in this um, chapel. Eventually, um, they then built, eventually the Black Death, this was in the mid-1300s, the Templars were outlawed by the Pope because he owed, they, owed him lots of mo- they owed them lots of money so he decided to call them all heretics and had them all yeah. rounded up and killed throughout most of Europe in 1307 but in Britain the king here had fallen out with him so they kind of survived here until the mid-1300s and that's when the Black Death struck and when the Black Death struck England the, they built another chapel on top of the hill, the Knights Templars at Temple Hardwick, at a place called the Burton Dasset Hills. They built this strange conical shaped tower with like a round pointy roof and a church. And legend, and, and, and then they were all wiped out by the plague. Their treasures were never found, including this golden chest, which may have been the Ark of the Covenant. The, there were stories then told that in the church that they built on top of the hill, there were supposed to be clues as to where they'd hidden their treasure, or at least this golden chest. And in, in years to come, quite some famous people went searching for, tried to search for these clues, including Sir Walter Raleigh, the man who basically started smoking in the West. He was the one who brought back tobacco to Europe from America. Uh, he basically brought back the, and made famous the potato. So that's, Sir Walter Raleigh, the, the explorer, one of the first Europeans to land in the North America, he became absolutely fascinated by this and tried to find, find these clues, couldn't. But there was a man in the early 1900s, 
called Jacob Cove Jones, who lived nearby, who was given a great opportunity. Renovations to the building were taking place, and when the plaster work was taken away, they found all these paintings all over the walls that were made by the Templars in the mid-1350s. And he was convinced that this was that these were the clues as to where the ark was hidden. Now, unfortunately, those particular things have all crumbled away because now they've got ways of preserving ancient uh, wall paintings, but they didn't then, and you can hardly see any of them today. But he decided, he was dying. He, he, I think he had consumption uh, TV. He knew he wasn't going to last long, and he told various other people he knew, archaeologists, because he was, again, one of these antiquarians, these amateur archaeologists, historians, that he knew where he thought the Ark of the Covenant was hidden, and, that, and he'd, he'd solved these Templars' clues, but they wouldn't believe him. So basically what he did, he was, at, and this is the interesting point, he was related to the guy, um, Thomas Wright, who had left a stained glass window as part of his clues to find the Grail, Inspired by that, he decided to make his own stained glass window with clues to where he thought the Ark of the Covenant was. This was a much smaller window in a tiny little church in a place called Langley in the county of Warwickshire, not far from Stratford-upon-Avon. And me and some colleagues uh, looked at this window and thought, you know, are these the clues? Um, And... Cutting a very long story short, it it, it depicted uh, not anything to do with the Ark of the Covenant, but the um, the, the, the Epiphany, the time when the three wise men are supposed to have visited the baby Jesus in the stable. And I thought, what on earth has that got to do with the Ark of the Covenant? Well, what we eventually worked out was that how we thought, how did the wise men discover where Jesus was as a baby. They followed a star. And in the top of the paint of the stained glass window, there was a star, in fact, two stars, one on top of another. So we thought, wow, maybe we're supposed to follow stars. Next to the two stars were the letters B and M. The Ark of the Covenant has these two angels on top of it that were supposed to, in Hebrew tradition be associated with the two stars, the two tail stars of the Big Dipper, known as Benetesh and Mitzar. BM, Benetesh and Mitzar, were these stars somehow supposed to, were we supposed to guide us somewhere? But if we were supposed to see where the stars were, where should we view them from? Remember I said the Templars built this strange conical tower on top of the Burton Dasset Hills? Well, Perhaps in, in the middle of the window, there was an exact representation of this same conical tower. So we thought, wow, that's got to be where we have to stand to observe these stars. But when? Well, the window was called the Epiphany window because it represented the time when the three wise men were supposed to have visited Jesus, traditionally and in the church calendar, on the 12th day of Christmas, um, January the 6th. So we thought, if we went up there on January the 6th and we observed these stars, maybe they'd tell us where we should look. But then again, what time? Because as the Earth rotates, the stars move all over the place. 
At the top of the window, there was a picture of a, of a rooster, a cockerel, crowing. And according to Christian tradition, when the wise men got to Bethlehem, how they found the stable was a cock crowed at midnight. So, midnight on January the 6th from this tower. Let's see if we can see where these two, where these two tail stars of the plough end up. And astonishingly, they end up right on the horizon, pointing downwards to a hill, just to the bottom of a hill on the horizon that we managed to find out where that was on a map. We went there, and by daylight, we found beside the road a strange little red brick arch that seemed to have been there since the, certainly since Victorian times when Jacob Coe Jones was alive. And right under the star in the window is depicted this same red arch. So we thought, that's where it is. This has got to be where Jacob Coe Jones thought that the ark was buried and never had time to dig it up. We got archaeologists there with ground-penetrating radar. We managed to find out that the, some of the, the, the original chapel was there, but when they'd laid a road right beside this uh, red brick arch, um, a lot of the stones had been taken away and used to shore up the embankment of a nearby stream. Um, maybe the builders, and this was back in the 1950s, maybe the builders had found the ark or something called the Templar's Treasure, when we went to where all these bits of the, uh, the, the brickwork of the old original chapel were used to shore up the embankment of this stream, we actually discovered a tablet upon which was these indecipherable markings. That was taken to a local museum. They were able to identify it as a form of sandstone that only exists in certain places, one of which being at Petra, where the mountain of God was, in my opinion, Mount Sinai. And the writing turned out to be proto-Sinaitic, that seemed to be, just possibly, this thing could have been one of the Ten Commandment tablets, or a broken one that had been inside the Ark of the Covenant. Perhaps the builders in the 1950s had found the gold thing, found these rubbishy stones inside it, as far as they were concerned, threw them away and kept the ark. And as, as far as we've been able to follow the, the, the story so far, I mean, I wrote everything about this in my book, The Temple is in the Ark of the Covenant. But since then, we've managed to find that the person who ran the, the construction company were responsible for the roads, after being relatively poor, became an extremely rich man and built a massive estate. And the story continues. Wow. Well, wasn't the Ark of the Covenant supposed to be death to anybody who touched it? Well, that's what they said. Um, but I would imagine that was something that was put round to stop people stealing it. Um, it's, um, I doubt personally, if it ever did have high-powered lasers coming out of it, or whatever you want to call it, I'd adapt, really, if it was... I think what it was, was that before the Jews... Uh, well, they were not the Jews at that time, they the Israelites. The Jews became known as the people from Judea around Jerusalem later on. But when the Israelites 
um, before they settled in around Jerusalem, they were nomadic. And so they actually had to have something to act as a kind of portable temple. Now, the Egyptians did this. What they did is that they had some holy artifact, usually a statue of a god, which was supposed to be able to be a link to that god. They would put it in a gold box with a picture of the god it represented, uh, an image of the god it represented on top, and it was carried around with a couple of poles, just like the Ark of the Covenant is described. In fact, one was found in Tutankhamun's tomb. The same size as the Ark is told us, we are told, in the Bible is. Um, it, was, it, it was exactly like an ark. It looks just like one. And on top is the figure of the jackal-headed god Anubis. And inside there was, a, there was um, uh, items and a statue associated with Anubis. The idea is they could carry it from town to town, the priests. And there, a priest would hold it, put his hands on it, and communicate and speak as Anubis. Well, the, 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 the ancient Israelites had recently been in Egypt when they were, in, uh, uh, were wandering in the wilderness and seemed to have copied the idea of what the Egyptians called a bark and made the ark to carry their sacred items that had supposedly been inscribed by God himself, um, the Ten Commandment tablets, so that a priest could put his hands on it and then talk as God, because if you read the Old Testament, it always says, and God said unto the Israelites, who's doing the talking here? Presumably a priest who is um, uh, speaking on God's behalf or being inspired to do so. So the story is, if you touch it, you die, would be a good reason to stop anybody else but the appointed priest from putting their hands on it. Makes good sense to me. Um, I just noticed our time. We haven't been able to get into... Your, your recent book that you're working on, Pandora's Box, which fascinates me. Um, and, and, you know, I guess we have to have you back for that one. Uh, <clears throat> well, I, that, that's, I'm, I'm actually still writing that one, so it'll be a bit of time, but uh, that's what I'm going in search of. Well, if there was a... <laughs> well, well, you know, I have come to learn over the last several years that all of the myths that we seem to have thought were just make-believe stories have grains of truth in them. So um, it, it, it would not surprise me at all if there isn't something that, that rings true about Pandora's box because, I mean, let's face it, there was a time when all of humanity got together, spoke the same language, and lived in peace and harmony. And... Um, something happened because that's not where we are today so it wouldn't surprise me a bit if if somehow something was let loose that touched the consciousnesses and and altered and morphed the the dna of people and and put us on pathways where where we conflict and and we're angry at one another so um i will be fascinating with where you take that one because well, maybe, maybe if we find it, we can put all the evil back in it. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say, if you do find it, for God's sakes, don't open it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be a... Um, yeah, we don't need any more evil. But then again, somebody opened it, all the evil's already come out, so presumably it's empty. 
But um, I, I mean, seriously, I mean, the, the story of the box could, um, you know, it could be based on some historical reality of some kind. Maybe not all the evils of the world were in it, but it was some ancient artifact that was uh, that was highly revered by the Greeks. Well, you know, if you if you take it back even pre-diluvian, so that so that if you go back before the flood, before all of that, um, there is talk of a of a society, a culture that was peaceful and loving and giving and sharing, and and there was no war and everybody spoke the same language, and so. I could see how uh, something that, that that released an energetic into that society could have could have set us on a pathway that that you know it would be nice if we knew what came out so we could put it back in and slam it down and and not ever open it again. So I'm I would definitely I'm looking forward to where you go with this one. But before we get too much further here, I um, want to give your website once more so people know where to find all of your material. Yeah, my website is grahamphillips.net. And you will basically, on there, you will find all the books I've written, well, most of them at the moment. And if you click on the uh, on the front page on one of those books, basically all, everything is explained there. Um, about what I've done and photographs and everything. If you want to see my YouTube, um, you can either click on the link to it on, on that front page of my website or just look up Graham Phillips Author. And there's plenty of short videos I've made plus some bits and pieces I've, when I've been on television. If you want to look at my IMDB, again, there's a, you can just click on the link on my page and you can see all the various films and videos and uh, TV stuff I've been in and maybe I'll find them online. And uh, anybody wants to go onto my YouTube, it's Graham, also Graham Phillips author. Very Not YouTube, easy to sorry, find. I mean Facebook. Facebook, I mean, yeah, and, as well. Facebook and YouTube and, and, is Graham Phillips author. And and the website is is beautifully done and easy to use. Thank you. And... Uh, I, I highly recommend you know people read their way through all of your books because certainly the material in them is is educational as well as entertaining as I said earlier and um, they're they're a page turner you don't ever get bogged down in so much detail that your eyes glaze over it's they're good 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 books and um, you know I'd use them as junior high actually having kids read them because if if you can do it they can maybe grow up to be able to do it as well and, and uncover other mysteries that are still out there. Happily, history is full of mysteries, so I think you're in good shape here. I don't think you'll ever run out of material. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure and thanks so much for being with us. I know Mark is going to have you on again too and um I left some of the material out there so that so there's stuff for you to cover with him. And I do thank you again for being with us, and I look forward to getting you on again. My pleasure. Okay, everybody, thank you for being with us. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this will be up on YouTube um, come later on this afternoon. And, you know, check us out. If you like what you see, please subscribe to the uh, channel because that's how we know you're listening. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye.